0: what is going on guys so it is currently ten twenty on saturday night just in light of everything that's going on in our country right now with the coronavirus we've just been kind of wrestling through how can we go about handling that the right way as a church and we're going to gather tomorrow morning or this morning as you're watching it um yeah, we're, we're going to gather, but we figured quite a few of you either, A, aren't feeling well, and so you want to serve your brothers and sisters by not showing up, and we appreciate that, and we hope that you get well soon. Uh, we figure some of y'all will be major hypochondriacs and are going to take the wise approach and not gather, and that's okay, um, and so we wanted to serve you by um, uploading the, the teaching, hence this, so that way you could watch it on Sunday morning. Um, And then some of y'all, we figured, hey, you may just be curious about Harbor, and so we wanted to give you an opportunity to um, see the teaching in our spare bedroom, my wife and I's spare bedroom, but we're going to continue working our way through the the Gospel of John, specifically looking at John chapter 12, verses 12 through 16. We're going to read verse 19, but we're going to um, really camp out in verses 12 through 16 today, specifically looking at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I'm going to be honest with you guys, I really struggled with whether or not John chapter 12 really relates to what's currently going on in our culture today. And just began to think through, how does Jesus riding into Jerusalem correlate to the coronavirus does that really speak to what's going on in our culture today but the more I began to meditate on this passage and the more I began to meditate and think through what we're going through as a country and as a church begin to realize I think there's much for us to glean here in light of this passage and so I'm excited for us to to dive in um So, let's dive into that. Hopefully, you've opened your Bibles up. If you haven't, press pause on this video. Go grab your Bible. Open up to John chapter 12. And as you're turning there, if you haven't turned there already, let me introduce our passage this way. So, several years ago, um, my wife and I, my family, we went to New York. And I remember vividly my dad and I walking out of this store and seeing this huge crowd Rush past us, um, and so this was a big ordeal, right? So there's cameras flashing, there's people shouting. Uh, this is this huge mob following a specific individual. Some of that are like, Who in the world is this? Who are these people chasing after? What's going on here? And it turns out that it was Vanessa Hudgens, you know, the, the girl from High School Musical. Sore and fly. She did a great job with Zac Efron in a stellar, stellar movie, movie series. Watch it if you haven't. Um, but I think at that particular moment for me in New York, it was, it was eye-opening, right? That this large amount of people were consumed with following this girl in New York. Um, And I think it began to to teach, as I began to think back on that particular moment, I think it teaches us um, a specific truth that is seen in our passage today, and it's this, is that we flock to people that we view as important, right? So some of us will drop what we're doing and immediately chase after the Vanessa Hudgens in New York, right? If you see her, you stop what you're doing you drop your hot dog and you follow after her. But others aren't going to follow her. They're just like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. But but some of us are going to, at the drop of a hat, chase after LeBron James if we see him in public. Because he's the GOAT. He's the greatest basketball player of all time. And so some are going to follow after him to, to see him. But others aren't. Some of us will stop what we're doing to be in the presence of the President of the United States. But others won't um, but here's the deal there's very few people in throughout history that an entire nation will stop what they're doing and chase after that specific person and welcome that specific person into their town or into their city and that's exactly what we see in our passage today we will see Jesus. Entering into Jerusalem and an entire nation, an entire people, rushing out to greet him as he enters in, welcoming him as king. So as we work through this passage, I think we see that that reflects the type of power that Jesus truly possesses. He is the the king of Israel. He is the one who's going to bring peace, not only to Israel, but to the entire world. He is this king. And so we're going to see this triumphal entry of Jesus. But let's kind of refresh our memory of what led up to that, right? So in last week's passage, we saw Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They all have this type of celebratory dinner because Jesus just raised Lazarus from the grave. So where Lazarus was dead for four days, he is now alive, um, and they're having this dinner in Bethany. And during this dinner, Mary takes some really expensive ointment and washes Jesus' feet with it. And so we learn that this was an incredible sign of worship and an incredible sign of adoration. And as Wayne put it last week, uh, he says that Jesus is worthy of complete surrender, courageous, Unashamed, open-handed surrender. And so following on the coattail of that story, in today's passage, following that sweet moment of worship and adoration, we now see Jesus make plans to enter into Jerusalem for the last time before his death. His time to die has come. His death is on the horizon and Jesus knows it. And this last and final entrance into Jerusalem is a big deal. In fact, many of your Bibles will probably title this section as the triumphal entry of Jesus. So this is a a big deal. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, this is just a tidbit of information. Really, John chapter 1 through 12 makes up about a three year span of Jesus' life and his ministry, but John chapter twelve till really John chapter twenty one makes up about six days of his life. And so the timeline of what we're looking at really begins to slow down. This is the, the Passover week, the week leading up to Jesus's death. And so Jesus's entry into Jerusalem as we'll see today, is greatly celebrated. It's rejoiced over because the crowd has heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead. And they believe that he is the long-anticipated king that will lead them to victory over their enemies. They believe that he is the king that will bring peace to his people. But here's the deal. As we've worked our way through the Gospel of John, we've quickly begun to realize that although Jesus is the King of Israel, He is this anticipated King. He's not not the type of King that they're expecting. We're going to see this more clearly as we work our way through this passage. So as we work our way through this passage, we're going to spend the bulk of our time today unpacking how Jesus chose to enter into Jerusalem. Jesus, although he is the one who possesses all power and authority, he chose to ride in on a donkey, which, as we unpack that, is going to be really profound. So, let's go ahead and dive into this passage. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to dive in. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So look in your Bibles back up to verse 12. Let's. Let's kind of unpack that. It says this, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So the first thing I think I want us to answer is, or address is, is what what feast is going on right now? Let's take note of that, that word, the feast, right? Because I want us to do that because understanding what feast is taking place here will Help us understand the magnitude of what's taking place. Do you remember what feast is going on? If you've been with us the past couple weeks, then you you should know the answer to this question. Back in John chapter 11, verse 55, and then back up in John chapter 12, verse 1, tells us that the the Passover feast is at hand. So in John 11, verse 55, says this, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Okay, and then down at John chapter twelve verse one says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was dead, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. So we know that the Passover feast is at hand, and Passover is one of the three pilgrimage feasts. Okay, so Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths, and and what. A pilgrimage feast means is that the Jews would be required to journey to Jerusalem to observe this feast. And so Passover was a time where God's people journeyed back into Jerusalem to celebrate and reflect on how God redeemed His people from slavery in Egypt through the bloodshed of a spotless lamb. So a couple weeks ago we went back Refreshed our memory of that Passover I believe it was two weeks ago back in John at the end of John 11 So if you want to go back and listen to the end of that sermon where I began to kind of unpack that and And how Jesus is the fulfillment of that feel free to we don't have time to do that today But what that tells us here Is that you have Jews from all over journeying into Jerusalem to observe this feast Which means that when John says a large crowd, he means a large crowd, right? A a Jewish historian named Josephus, in describing one Passover around 66 or 70 AD, estimated that roughly 2.7 million people were in attendance that year. So that's a ton of people. 2.7 million people is a lot of people in Jerusalem. But the reality is, is that number could be inflated and we simply don't know um, how to definitively prove whether or not that number is accurate. And so some believe that that number is inflated. So let's just be really, really safe and say that there was just one million people in attendance here. Right. So we're not even just cutting that number in half, but we're we're really Cutting into that number just to be safe, right? That's still a ton of people that would be in Jerusalem at this time. So for those of you who went to our Joe Kane Day outreach a couple weeks ago, there was reportedly one hundred and one thousand three hundred and sixty or three hundred and seventy six people in attendance at Joe Cain Day that Sunday. And if you were there, if you were with me, trying to bob and weave through all of those people, you would know that there was a ton of people that day. 101,376 people is a lot. We're trying to wheel these carts with our water bottles and our Harbor Community Church koozies that we're going to pass out. Trying to bob and weave through all these people, and it was difficult. There was a large crowd. So to put the Passover crowd into perspective, Let's multiply that Joe Cain Day crowd by 10. And you have a rough estimate of the amount of people that would be in attendance at this Passover feast. So for every one person that was at Joe Cain Day, you would need 10 more people to equal the amount of people at Passover. And just for fun... Let's say that Josephus' estimate of 2.7 million people is accurate. For every one person at Jocaine Day, you would need another 26 people to begin to scratch the surface of the amount of people present at the Passover feast. So because it's Passover, we know that when John says the large crowd that had come to the feast, he means a large crowd crowd of people that had come to the feast. There's a lot of people here at this moment. Now, if you were to look down to your verse 17 or verse 18 in John chapter 12, you'll begin to see that the people who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, um, they had continued to bear witness about Jesus at this time. And it's because of that testimony that this large crowd is going out to meet Jesus. And so you got sisters, you got ladies who were eyewitnesses to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And they're going back home. They're going back to their work. And they're saying, girl, listen to me. I was at this funeral. I was following Mary. I was following Martha. And then this man named Jesus walks up and he Told us to wheel that stone away, and we did. And we thought it was gonna stink, and it did stink. But then Jesus yells at Lazarus, and Lazarus comes out, and his linen smelled so bad. But that man was alive, he was dead, but now he's alive. You got guys saying, Bro, he was dead, but now he's alive. I witnessed it, I watched it. He's now in Bethany, eating, fellowshipping with Jesus. Jesus brought this man back to life. And so listen, I think, may that same testimony be true of our lives, right? The Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But by God's grace and by His mercy, we've been made alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So like Lazarus, we once reeked of death, but now we let off the aroma of Christ, of life where we were dead. We now have been brought back to life. And so may the testimony of our salvation, may that astonish those around us. And may it, um, be so astonishing that those around us begin to talk about it. Our lives should be different than the way they once were. All right, so in hearing this news about Jesus, the crowd, as we see in verse 13, if you look in your Bibles, the crowd now begins to take action. So look at verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, when you compare John's account of this story with the other Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll notice that John's the only one who tells us what type of branches are being used here. Uh, He tells us that the crowd took branches of palm trees and went to meet Jesus. And so that kind of should lead us to ask the question, what's the significance of palm trees here? Why did they grab these types of branches? I think these types of branches, uh, I think the type of branches that they grab tell us a couple things. One, I think they tell us who they believe Jesus is, and then two, what they're trying to communicate about Jesus. And so ever since 164 B.C., so during the Maccabean revolt where the Syrian army uh, was drove out of Jerusalem and the temple was restored palm branches had become a national sign of kingship and of victory and so palm branches were the badge of a conqueror right so the cl- the crowd has heard about the power of Jesus and so they therefore assume That Jesus is the one who possesses the power to deliver them from Roman oppression. Just like what happened back in 164 BC. Just like the Maccabean Revolt. Which leads them to welcome Jesus in as king. He is the king of Israel, they think. He is this promised king. And as they meet Jesus with palm branches in their hands, they cry out, Hosanna! And Hosanna means save us now. And then they exclaim, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So this this middle part of this confession comes from Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles over there, um, Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. So grab your Bibles, turn over there. Those verses would have been recited and sung regularly during both the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover. So, this would have been something that would have been on their lips fairly regularly. <clears throat> but Psalm 118, verse 25 through 26 says this Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of of the Lord. So again, this would have been something that would have been recited fairly regularly, sung fa- fairly regularly during Passover, and saying blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord would have been a common way of greeting another traveler who had come into the temple during this feast. So John records an important detail found in this greeting. Um, And it's at the end of this. This important detail is the fact that they add even the king of Israel. So that's not a a direct quote of Psalm 18. That's their own words added to this declaration here. And that's an important detail because it's a, a messianic identification. They're saying, they're declaring Jesus as the king of Israel. The one who possesses the power to come and to save them. So between the palm branches, which are a national sign of kingship and victory, uh, from the declaration of Hosanna, save us now, and the added phrase, even the king of Israel, we see clearly that this crowd, that Israel believes Jesus to be the king of Israel. And in hearing of the works of Jesus, hearing of all that he has done, hearing the fact that he's raised Lazarus from the dead, the crowd thinks he's the long awaited for Messiah who will set them free from Roman captivity. So they're ready to crown him as king. Hosanna, even the king of Israel, he is our king. Now, following the recording of that proclamation, John and every other gospel writer makes a point to tell us what Jesus chooses to ride in on. And I think what he chooses to ride in on is really important. And it truly is remarkable the more you begin to dig into it and think on it. As we see in verse 14, Jesus finds a young Eddie Murphy, sits on it, and rides into the city. That was a a Shrek reference, if you didn't get that. Eddie Murphy, the voice of the donkey in Shrek. Anyway, so in verse 14, we see Jesus find a young donkey, sit on it, and ride into the city. Look at verses 14 through 15. And Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, Unlike the other Gospels, John spares quite a bit of details here. For example, Matthew tells us that Jesus sent His disciples to get the donkey. Um, So in the Gospel of Matthew, right, um, Jesus tells and sends His disciples to go get a donkey that He had miraculously provided provision for them to retrieve. Um, Luke tells us that Jesus stopped and wept before he entered the city. But John kind of gives us the Cliff Notes versions here. He simply tells us that Jesus finds and sits on a donkey, and then how that act is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy found in Zechariah. So why is Jesus riding in on a donkey important? Why couldn't Jesus have walked into the city And that been significant, why could he have not ridden in on a horse? What is the significance of a donkey here? Well, I think first it tells us what type of king Jesus truly is. When you stop and you begin to think about the fact that Jesus rode in on a donkey, you begin to realize, okay, no, donkeys aren't very kingly, right? If they're ready to crown Jesus as king, Kings ride horses. Kings don't ride donkeys. So what's going on here? Because uh, horses would have been a, a symbol of war. Those would have been a symbol of power. You see that in Isaiah chapter 31 and First Kings chapter 4. So horses are big. They're fast. They're strong. They're powerful. They're mighty. the men who rode them were big and strong and powerful and mighty. Kings rode horses. Horses are big. Kings don't ride donkeys. Kings, let alone, don't ride young donkeys. But what we see Jesus doing here is Jesus doesn't just choose to ride a donkey. He chooses to ride a young donkey. A young donkey would have been the exact opposite of war strength and power there's no swagger in riding in on a donkey it would have been kind of like deciding to hop into my hyundai sonata instead of a a hummer right Um, one symbolizes power and war and swagger and coolness another symbolizes peace and humility and good gas mileage uh, you ain't taking my Hyundai Sonata into war. You're not taking that into battle. You're taking that around town to get good gas mileage. Um, you could have a nice car ride with me, but you're not going into war with my Hyundai Sonata. So where Jesus could have arrived on a war horse, displaying his power and dominance and swagger, he intentionally sought out a humble and peaceful. Arrival, which communicates to us ultimately His purpose in coming. Jesus is not entering in as an arrogant king who will rule over His people. He is entering as a humble king who will serve His people by ultimately laying His life down on the cross. And so He came not to be served, but to serve. Now, As we know the end of this story, we know that the way that he will usher in peace is through his death on the cross. But no one understands that at this point, not even his disciples. In fact, if you look down, if you skip verse 15, look down at verse 16, John tells us that his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. So Jesus' disciples and the crowd do not truly understand what is taking place here. They don't get what Jesus is doing. But the moment Jesus is crucified, their, their perspective is beginning to change. And the moment that He's raised from the grave, things are going to begin to click. The moment He's raised and ascended back to heaven on the cloud, then things are beginning to finally make sense. The kingdom of God is the exact opposite of everything that they had ever known and everything that they had ever expected. Here we see the true king of kings display humility over power. Now, going back to verses 14 through 15, um, and we're going to go back to this, this point of Jesus displaying humility over power in just a minute. We're going to close on that. But I want to go back to, um, anytime you see the word just as it is written in a New Testament passage, you should always ask the question, well, what was written? Right? You should always find what the author is referencing and then go back to that reference and understand that reference in its entire context. Um, It'll help you understand what's being communicated here more fully. So let's do that really quick. John is telling us that Jesus arriving on a donkey fulfills a prophecy, fulfills a promise spoken by God 500 years beforehand, which that prophecy says that the king of Israel is coming on a donkey's colt. And so this prophecy is found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. So let's look at the context of that. Let's read that verse in its entirety. Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine says this. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles there. If you haven't turned there, go ahead and turn. I'll give you just a second um, because I think this is important: us understanding what the context of these verses are. So this was Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. It's it's right before Matthew. Um, Right before Malachi, I believe. Um, so, not too far from the, the New Testament. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, 19. If you're not there, just hit pause. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Sing aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The full the full." Of a donkey, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. All right, so at the time of this prophecy, due to Babylonian captivity, Israel had no king. And so God's promising them that a king is coming, that this eternal king is coming. And this king is going to be righteous, and he's going to bring salvation. He is going to save them. And this king is going to be humble, and he's going to bring peace to the nations. He's going to bring peace to the ends of the earth. And so listen to me. My prayer is if you have never been able to see this, my prayer is that you'll be able to see this today. Jesus is this King. In Him, in Jesus, is this righteousness. He has never sinned. He is blameless, spotless, sinless. He is righteous. And He came. The purpose of His coming is to bring salvation He is our only hope for being saved. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the purpose of His coming. Um, He is our only hope for peace with God, and He is our only hope for peace with one another. The former hostility between Jews and Gentiles was dealt viciously with on the cross. In Him is peace. The two shall become one. Uh, their one body, this truly remarkable aspect of the gospel. He brings peace to the nations, peace to the ends of the earth. He is this king. So listen to me. Jesus is the anticipated king who the prophet Zechariah promised would come. He is the one who possesses the power over death and life. And he is the one who will rule from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. That is good news for us who is at the ends of the earth here in America today. He is that King. He is the humble, meek, and loving King who came to bring peace to the world through His death on the cross. So as things are unraveling, out of control, God still sits on the throne. He is still king and he has come to bring us peace peace with God and peace with one another this is good news and so let's unpack that for a minute let's draw some application to um, how Jesus chose to come and then the purpose of his coming and men let me speak to you for a moment women maybe you struggle with this as well I don't know but I want us to fully wrap our minds around the humility and service being displayed here, and I want us to do that because as I've reflected on this passage, I've been confronted with a type of cultural masculinity that I've subtly brought that I've subtly bought into. Um, some of y'all may think that I'm crazy, but let me try to be uh, transparent and let me try to explain. Here. At times, when I walk into a room, or when I meet somebody new, or when I meet somebody or have a conversation with someone that I already know, I find myself consumed with what that person or what those people think about me. And so whether it's rooted in insecurity or whether it's rooted in pride, I'm not sure. But I always, like, I find myself trying to like puff your chest up. Give somebody the nod, give them a firm handshake, and then just say something to the effect of, What's up, man? Like, you want to come across as a cool guy. You want to try to display some type of swagger. I'm terrified of what people might think about me, and I want everybody to think highly of me. And so I'm afraid that people are going to think that I'm just some type of sissy. And so I try to display some type of swagger or toughness or hardness. And the more I watch um, television or the more I just watch people in general, the more I begin to realize I think that this isn't just a struggle that I struggle with myself. I think that this is something that we all struggle with. We want to be viewed highly amongst others. But here's what we see Jesus do. Nobody possessed more power than Jesus. In a few days before this, he literally raised a man to life. Right? Nobody displays more power than that. No one is more hard. Nobody is more tough. Nobody has more swagger than Jesus. But when all eyes are on him, when an entire People rush out to greet him, ready to crown him as king. Jesus chooses to lower himself and ride in on a donkey. Rather than reach for swagger, he reaches for humility. His entrance doesn't just stand in stark contrast to every other king in the history of this world. It stands in stark contrast to you and I and the posture of our heart. Rather than grab for power or grab for fame, Jesus, the King of Kings, chooses humble service. He chooses to empty himself and become a servant. As he's preparing to bring peace through his death on the cross, he chooses to ride in on a donkey, as a portrait, as a picture of what He is ultimately coming to accomplish. He came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus here is showing us that the kingdom of God is not a place where you get to um, seek out selfish gain. Rather, He is showing us that the kingdom of God is where we humbly serve one another laying down our lives in such a way that reflects the gospel for the well-being of one another those who are not ourselves our actions are to be marked with humble service so whenever you walk into a room your prayer and your goal should always be to reflect the humility of christ in the way That you serve others. We should acknowledge our propensity towards self-centeredness. And we should pray, Lord, give me humility and help me serve those around me in such a way that reflects the gospel. And I think this is why Paul, at the end of 2 Corinthians, tells the church to greet one another with a brotherly kiss or a holy kiss I'm not telling you to greet, I'm definitely not telling you to greet one another with a holy kiss right now in light of the coronavirus, but such actions, those communicate humble love and and peace and comfort to one another. How you greet one another is important. When you walk into a room and when you make eye contact with somebody, how you greet them is important. Being intentional in how you address one another is important. So give thought to how you can communicate Christ-centered, brotherly, sisterly love to one another in the church. And you're going to have to give really careful thought to this as things move forward with the coronavirus, right? Do not greet one another with a brotherly kiss right now. Don't greet one another with a, ha- a hug or a handshake. But you can still communicate hospitality and love and humility and service through your facial expressions and through your words and through your actions, through your continual actions. So be thoughtful to one another. Be Humble to one another. Be meek. Be intentional in serving one another throughout your day-to-day life. Whatever you do, your goal should be to reflect the humility of Christ. If serving one another never crosses your mind, then your heart, I would make the argument that your heart has never been transformed by the gospel. As Christians, you now get to imitate the service that Christ has displayed for us. You no longer get to consume yourself with questions or concerns that relate to how you can be served. Rather, you get to consume yourself with thoughts on how you can humbly serve others. My kids are walking in. Hey, buddy, come here. Um, say hey so as you engage the lost with the gospel do so humbly when somebody combats your faith with hostility um, and is acting like another nickname for the word donkey it's easy to want to declare war against that person an individual in order to win an argument but put to death your, po- your pride ride the truth um, into that conversation on a donkey, be humble and serve um, even non-believers. And as you do life with one another, um, within the church, do so humbly. Uh, scripture constantly coronavirus. Scripture constantly calls us in Scripture to be patient with one another and love one another even when others have wronged us in the church. And so therefore, we want to be... Um, buddy, are you are you wiping buggers on me? Gross. Um, so we want to be humble peace bearers within the church. We live in a very consumeristic um, and shallow culture where if things aren't going as planned, we can simply attend another church. But may that be, not be our tendency. Our goal at Harbor... Um, is not to grow our church through the ruins of another church. And our goal is to not build another church with the ruins of our own. So plug in um, and do life with one another, humbly serving one another. Serve your family, one another. Serve your wife and your kids. Serve them well, humbly. Um, mm mm-hmm. So every aspect of our lives as Christians should reflect the peace and humility demonstrated here in this passage. And so if I were to go and interview everyone in your life, if I were to interview your boss, your family members, your co-workers, your kids, your wife, your um, whoever, um, would they say that you are humble? Would they say that you consider others more than yourselves. Would you, they consider you a servant. And may every aspect of your life be reflective of the humble service that Christ has displayed for us in Him willingly entering into Jerusalem on a baby donkey in preparation for Himself laying His life down on the cross so the way of the kingdom of God is one of imitating Christ. May we be intentional in our imitation of Christ. All right, church, um, this is my cue to go put my son to bed. It's 11 o'clock, and he is awake, and he is gone. Um, that was the last five minutes. He walked in, and I'm not going to re-record that. So love you guys. I, man, I pray that you guys are safe and healthy. Um, But here's the reality Is that we have an eternal hope In Christ Jesus He is still on the throne Um, The coronavirus No virus can um, Take away that hope from us So I pray that this will be a um, Time where we are able to Cling to that hope We are able to grow in our faith um, Praying against isolation Um, Pick up your phone And if you did not go to church today Pick up your phone Call a brother or sister in the church. um, Tell them that you love them. um, Pray for them. Um, Yeah, I'll see you guys soon.